Hello, and welcome to the History Voyager, a podcast about history. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. I thought today I would interview a man named Jarrett Rominski about American history, specifically about the Civil War, and also about my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. He's a Ph.D. that has dealt with American history regarding the Civil War and also, therefore, the American South. We talk a great deal about these two things. And also, you're, you're going to hear his wife in a cameo appearance with a cat. And I made a conscious decision to leave that in because I think, in a way, this podcast itself is a document of our time. We also talk about COVID and about how Canada, at least his slice of Canada, is very, very basically gobsmacked at the American response to COVID-19. The more I talk to people all across the world, the more they're just sort of amazed at the lack of leadership. There's people born you know, after the war, at this point far after the war, even in America, that say, we won the war. And I have to remind these people over and over again that nobody alive won the war against the Nazis. And fewer and fewer people alive are of the generation that went to the moon. I don't know, I think there's a a great change in this country, in the attitude of the country. America is essentially emptying out into cities and other suburban areas. Fewer and fewer Americans are found in rural counties, and there's a remarkable statistic I came across uh, recently where half of American counties have one or fewer grocery stores. I know I've said that in the podcast before, but it's just an amazing statistic. I've, I've begun to think that essentially... We are two different countries, essentially under the same geopolitical roof. And a lot of people in this country, and a lot of people that I've spoken to, are are seeking to draw parallels between the division of today with either the Civil War or Vietnam. And for sure there are certain parallels, but I, I really don't think that the two are, or two or three situations are anywhere near analogous, and I don't think we're continuing the Civil War from the 1860s or from Vietnam. I, I think this is growing pains of a society, basically. And honestly, I have no real insight as to how this will go, because, and here's the thing, history is a crooked path, You know, you can be sure you're on one trajectory when there's a a hard turn. Uh, Jarrett Rominski talks about how conspiracy theory plays sort of an undeniable role in history. And that happened in the Civil War, and I think it's happening now. And I think a lot of people really haven't thought seriously about social media. 
but maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe people have thought seriously about it. Maybe that's why its viewership or, I guess, usership seems to be declining, at least anecdotally from everything I've spoken to. But I'm sure that there's a younger generation and people like that that don't remember the world before Facebook and Twitter. You know, certainly TikTok is massively popular despite the fact that it is essentially Chinese spyware. And by the way, this shouldn't be too controversial for you. There's uh, plenty of research out there that shows that that's very widely available in the uh, common domain. But I don't know. I'm. It's just sort of amazing to me, all the the people that I speak with and how amazed they are by America's I guess, I don't know, you want to call it a lack of a response to COVID or a partial response or, to use a technical term, I guess, the uh, higgledy-piggledy response to COVID. Um, as of right now, as I'm recording this, there are upwards of 220,000 deaths from COVID-19 in this country. Um, and... I haven't spoken to a single person yet that doesn't think there's actually more. You know, as I've covered in my podcast, it's fairly easy for a death of a specific d disease to get misclassified or reclassified either maliciously or not. Anyway, without any further ado, I'm going to give you my conversation with uh, Jarrett Reminsky. Um, have have a good day, and I'll talk to you soon. Alrighty. Okay, this is uh, Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. I'm here with uh, Jarrett. Um, say your last name for me. Rominski. Rominski. Yeah. And you have a PhD in uh, basically American history. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, American history. When I asked, uh, emphasized the Civil War. And the South. Wow. The South. Here we are in the South. Here I am in the South. Well, on a map anyway. Atlanta, I guess it's... Well, that's interesting. Maybe, can you talk about sort of the urban South versus, say, the rural South? Yeah, that's interesting because uh, my advisor at the University of Calgary, his name is Frank Towers, and that's sort of his specialty is the 19th century urban South. He's published two uh, book collections on it. But, um, and uh, I tend, since I trained under him, I tend to think of the urban South as like um, uh, following the trajectory of the rest of the country, uh, but still with a bit of um, Southern flavor, if that makes sense. So I've met some native Southerners, a friend of mine actually, who's from Macon, Georgia. Uh, he always jokes that Atlanta doesn't count as the South. Um, and there's always been this kind of, you know, this trend in Southern history that has been very ambiguous in, in, in its feeling about urban centers. But of course, you know, without urban centers, uh, they, they, the South couldn't have fought the Civil War. And of course, you know, they're part of the, 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 the culture. So uh, it's, there's always an interesting dichotomy. You know, it's part of that bigger dichotomy in the U.S., that kind of urban rural dichotomy that we always see you know, people fighting over. So I don't think it's yeah. actually even limited to the South. Well, that's and that's right. I'm really curious. Um, I'm, I mean, I I've studied Atlanta. Atlanta is my hometown. Uh, my mother's people 
uh, essentially uh, walked into what we would today consider the exurbs of Metro Atlanta mm-hmm. uh, around about 1810 or so. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, we've been here a while. Uh, my, my, her father was, um, he was, uh, he wasn't a big, big mover and shaker, but when Atlanta was a a much smaller town, he was a, a bigger fish, say not a big mover and shaker, but a, a a bigger type of fish in a much smaller pond. It's really strange for me to think about it. Uh, when I travel other places, it, now it strikes me how small they seem compared to my hometown. You know? No, I get that. Yeah, I was the last time I was in Atlanta was in 2014. I attended the Organization of American Historians Conference there, and oh, okay. uh, I, I had led a panel there, and uh, I didn't get to see much of the city, but uh, it has gotten massive over the last couple of decades. That's for sure. Yeah. It, and actually, I don't, I don't know how much of this you know, but actually, there's actually, a, a, and this has been going on, so there's a, um, basically, like, the Republicans and the Democrats sort of change sides, if you will, uh, to some extent. Actually, so this is what makes it a bipartisan fight. But actually, for decades, there's been a bipartisan fight. Um about how big Atlanta is, really. Like, um, and the latest wrinkle, because now this this partisan fight is uh, basically starting to impact people's daily lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now what they do is they they're okay. Well, these people are visitors. So yeah, okay, we can spend more for water and power <laughs> things, but these people are visitors, so they don't really look. It's, it's funny. It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, but uh, so you studied the urban South in the Civil War. Well, not the urban South specifically. My, my advisor focuses on that, but I, I, I uh, uh, focused a lot on uh, cities in the South in my, my book. Uh, it's not exclusively about the urban South, but my advisor, Frank Towers, always emphasized that uh, you can't overlook the urban South when it comes to civil war, that a lot of historians for generations underplayed how important the urban South was. What was the role of the urban South in the civil war? There's a question. Well, I mean, the, the cities like Atlanta, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and of course, Richmond, Virginia, those were, these were the, uh, Richmond is the, the home of Tredegar Ironworks, right? So those, these were the, the foundries of the Confederacy that supplied war materials, uh, both in terms of uh, like cotton production for war uniforms, uh, ammunition of all sorts, uh, moving troops around. These are centers of railroad depots. So the Civil War couldn't have been executed the way it was without key urban centers. And that's why that uh, Union generals like William T. Sherman and Ulysses S. Grant, that's why the first places they took out when they invaded the South were places like um, Memphis, uh, Tennessee, Jackson, Mississippi, and I might say Atlanta, Georgia, because if you bust up the railroad lines, you bust up the ability for the Confederate forces to move their troops around. And you bust up their supply depots that can send troops troops supplies from large distances. So the, the urban centers were essential actually to the especially to the fight in the south itself 
Yeah. I was wondering, um, I'm just wondering now, actually, the um, Georgia Tech, um, formerly called the Georgia Institute of Technology, the formal name of it, mm-hmm. but uh, Georgia Tech was created by union officers. Um, uh, do you know anything about that? or um, Not specifically, no, but I know that uh, there are a lot of... Um, technical schools or various training academies that emerged out of, uh, especially after the war during reconstruction, radical reconstruction. Yeah. Uh, And so that might be part of that, but I don't know about that specifically. Well, Georgia tech is actually, uh, it's not a, I mean, it started out as a technical school, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's now on par with MIT and yeah, it's a big school. Yeah. Like that. So yeah. Yeah. It's actually weird when you go there, though, because, like, the old buildings look really old, and inside they're kind of decrepit. <laughs> but the new buildings are, like, you know, <laughs> really amazing <laughs> looking. Yeah. It's actually weird. Um, so, okay, let's talk a little bit. Because I want to talk about, I, I think about this a lot, and I studied it in school a lot, was the urban-rural divide in this country, mm-hmm. which I guess is widening. I don't guess. I know it's widening. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, the urban-rural divide is as old as the Republic itself. I mean, it goes, uh, in fact, I remember, I think I wrote a blog post on this a few years back, like, uh, it goes all the way back to Jefferson, you know, Jefferson and his, I think his notes on the state of Virginia, his, his thing was talking about the supposed virtue of the rural, rural lifestyle, right? The small, the small land holding farmer, the yeoman farmer. And that, uh, that while he admired the cities because he was the most cosmopolitan man you would ever meet, despite being a planter, um, he always kind of was wary of the cities and wary of the vices and the, the kind of a jumble of different people and the dirtiness of the urban landscape, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries, right? Um, so it goes to Jefferson and a lot of um, among his peers in that era, there's the, there was this fear that, you know, uh, you know it, it, a lot of it's connected to immigration because, you know, in, in U.S. history, immigrants, wherever they came from, tended to come to the cities and settle in the cities first. And so the cities have always tended to be more diverse culturally, racially, um, economically, and that's always not quite sat right with um, small town people, people on farms in the U.S. And so they would always associate the city with this kind of dirty, crime-ridden, you know, um, messy environment. So it's it goes back as far as you can go in American history, this divide. Yeah, yeah. And... Of course, you know, the the thing to me about it is it seems to be accelerating the divide. I mean, you know, and uh, I mean, you look at our, a lot of our pop culture uh, seems like, like, for example, jazz. Jazz is a creation of New Orleans and uh, which, you know, that's a, that's a city and it's but it's in the south and all like that. Mm-hmm. It's very rural and and like that, and also, I mean, the blues. The blues is is rural, but kind of came into its own in the city, so to say, like in Chicago and St. Louis too. Yeah. St. Louis, exactly. 
And um, I don't know. It's just really interesting. The what was the statistics? I I um, like most. Uh, I think like half the counties in America have one or fewer grocery stores. Like that's one. Mm. Um, most of this. Uh, most of the census tracts in this country have no people in them. That's another one. <laughs> I mean. And you can actually, if you track the demographics, you can actually see where we're emptying into more, less and less counties yeah. in the country. And can you tell you've obviously, well, maybe I'm assuming you have. Have you heard of the Billy migration? Do you know what that is? The Billy migration? It's where the Appalachian people, they came to the city. Yeah, so that happened. Uh, I have not heard that term before, but I'm, I'm certainly aware of the, the process. It was it happened alongside the Great Migration in the early late 19th, early 20th century when African Americans fled the South to the northern cities to work in industry, and um, a lot of people from white people from Appalachia also did that. Yeah, and of course, uh, one thing that makes Atlanta interesting is, or I guess the kind of the specialness of it, if you want to say, is. We're kind of in the foothills of Appalachia. Mm -hmm. So you, you get, um, and you really start to see it like when you get in the northern suburbs, like you, you start to see like mountain culture interplaying with more of a, a city culture, so to say. And Atlanta is a very hilly place uh, as a city. And actually, I, I remember um, we're one of the, the highest elevation places as far as cities in the world, I think. I think I remember that somewhere. But, uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, Atlanta, you know, that's that was sort of the, the, the golden egg for the New South boosters in the early 20th century who wanted to, like, bring the, bring the South out of the, uh, the, the old planter-dominated culture and, you know, bring it into the 20th century as, you know, with an urban focus. But, you know, if you look at if you look at just the general like the electoral map, like you were saying, most people live in the cities in this in the United States. I mean, it is an urban country. The same up here with Canada. 80 percent of the country here lives in cities. And that has been a trend, a longstanding trend is people kind of filtering out into the cities because cities are generally, you know, the technological economic hubs and modern capitalism tends to bend towards urbanism. So it's not surprising, you know? And that, um, I mean, obviously, like you just said, that that started with the factory. That started with the advent of the um, the steam-powered factory. And then yeah. continued. And, and now we have the semi, what they call the semi-manipulators and all like that. And um, I, I just always, I mean, I think... This country, America, United States, because you're in Canada right now. Uh, this country, United States, has had a, a, a really weird uh, relationship with labor. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, but you know exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. It's had a very, very strange relationship with labor. And to my mind, it goes all the way back to the to the slaves and into the present day even i mean one of the things i i read in history that was just blew my mind was one of the most prestigious jobs a person could have 
was a shipwright. And most of your shipwrights were slaves until, you know, obviously with the Civil War. Mm -hmm. But um, that to me was, I mean, that's a keen insight into the into the, the 19th century mind, I think. You know, the 18th century mind as well is that you, it, it'd be the it kind of the equivalent of giving a spaceship engineer <laughs> to a slave, which that doesn't seem like it would jive, but there you go. Well, there's a whole, there's a whole a aspect of 19th century scholarship on slavery that emphasizes the experience of urban enslaved people. I mean, they worked in the, they, I mentioned the Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond, Virginia earlier. They worked in those, uh, those ironworks. They worked on the railroads. They worked uh, in cities just as well as like, you know, in, in the more kind of stereotypical plantations. So, um, yeah. It's, yeah. Can you talk about um, the role of the the free, so the white railroad worker in electing Lincoln? In electing Lincoln? Getting Lincoln um, elected. A little bit. I mean, Lincoln had the support. I mean, railroad workers would fit under the kind of the, the, the new laboring class. At, at the time, like uh, the famous book by Eric Foner really emphasizes this free soil, free labor, free men. And so people who were guys who were working on the railroads, for example, the Civil War wasn't so much. It was a, it was a it was a war between North and South, but it was a war about the West. It was a war about what would happen as the, the country moved westward and what would happen to those territories. And a driving force of that was the railroad economy. And so a lot of people who worked on the railroads in various capacities were, were not what you'd call racial egalitarians, but they were functionally anti-slavery because they didn't, they saw, they, they, they had knowledge of the fact that slaves could build railroad, railroad tracks just as easily as free white men. They could work on in the, in the uh, iron works to actually build the engines and cars. And they saw a growing railroad economy going west, and they did not want to have to compete with slave labor. And so that drove them to the Free Labor Republican Party in the late 1850s. And, you know, that culminated with their support behind Lincoln. And so that was particularly strong in the American Midwest, because those were sort of the gates of the, the new western right. frontier, all the way from Ohio to Indiana, Iowa, then all the way to St. Louis, you know, which was considered the gateway of the west at the time. Yeah, right. There's... Um... I mean, you probably know this, but there's counties um, that up until very recently had voted Republican ever since the, I forget the guy, but the guy before Lincoln. Fremont, John C. Fremont. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, there was a scene that I read about in when I was getting my master's where you had these two tracks that were run by two different companies and one was free and one was slave. And the two groups would like look at each other and size each other up, you know, mm -hmm. and there was some real tension between the two groups at first. And then what would happen would be the white people, I guess the free people would look and they would say, you know, oh, they're, they're, they're just as good at this as we are, as, as we are. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Kind of thing. And, um, yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Like I remember reading how many railroad workers 
actually ended up voting uh, Republican. Is actually pretty much not all of them, of course, but but a lot. Can you talk about um, the role of the railroad in the North versus the South? Uh, so the, the the railroad companies were much stronger, I guess, in what we'd call the Northern states. Um, Because most of them were anchored. I mean, their finance was anchored in places like New York and Boston. Um, And then some of them were uh, were anchored out west and I believe in California. But um, the the amount of just track length, the amount of railroad track and capacity to, to transport troops and goods and whatever was much higher in the Union States. And that's one of the one of the ways the Confederacy during the war, for example, struggles because they simply didn't have enough railroad capacity. And Southern politicians in the in the run up to like the secession crisis, for example, that was one of the things they were worried about that that the 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 power of the railroad companies in the free states was going to seriously jeopardize their economic control, especially over the federal government and such. And so. Um, and of course, there's that whole the whole westward expansion issue is, you know, if if the if the western territories join the union and they become free states, that's just going to consolidate the power of the railroads further. And so uh, it was sort of, it was really at the heart of not just the like the lead up to the Civil War, but also um, afterwards too, um, because a lot of those railroad companies, you know, a lot of the South was decimated after the war, and a lot of those railroad companies swooped in and bought huge tracts of land and got a lot of contracts. Um, that uh, took that took a lot of money and sent it back to uh, the finance capitals, right in New York and such. So, um, was, was that why? Okay, I just want to ask a question that mm. that you just caused in my brain. Is that why the the northern railroads were more extensive than the southern railroads? And also, the northern railroads linked up cities for the most part where the Southern railroads were more interested in uh, resource extraction. Yeah. I mean, the the Southern railroads also linked up cities because those were supply depots, but it was much, it was much more pronounced in in the free States. And, uh, and that's because, um, you know, in, in the, in modern Southern historiography, there's, you know, there's this, there's been this long idea that's really not true that says, and I'm sure you've heard it before. We all have, right. That, that the North was an industrial society and the South was a rural society and they fought during the civil war. And that's only true in the sense that the South was more rural than, than, than the free States, but not by much. Most of the free States were rural. Um, it was really a matter of degree, not something like a class of civilizations. And the railroad companies kind of stood at the center of that because transportation was becoming a, a bigger moneymaker for lack of a better term. Uh, and the South understood this and they didn't like the idea. A lot of Southern politicians didn't like the idea. And, and some of them said this before, before the war broke out, they're saying, they said like, we don't have the transportation capacity for troops, for supplies, for raw goods that uh, that you see going through Illinois or Ohio or Pennsylvania. So they just, um, they recognize that, but because their, their economy was still fundamentally centered 
on sort of um, raw agricultural supply, not exclusively, but still weighted in that direction. They simply didn't uh, have the extra transportation capacity that the free states had. Okay. Yeah, that, um, I mean, I'd heard that, that really it was sort of a, in terms of the economy, it was kind of a parallel at first. And then there was a year, I forget the year exactly, but there was a year that the North decided to throw its entire industrial might into fighting the war. Mm-hmm. And But I forgot the year exactly. But when you see it graphed out, it's, it's sort of interesting how... Oh, actually, let me get you to talk about that. <laughs> the how the war went from, at least from the Northern perspective, went from a kind of a slow burn to uh, let's kick it up several notches. So uh, what, what do you mean exactly by slow burn? Like, well, you can see in the, in the economic output or the, not output, but in the economic uh, uh, devotion of mm-hmm. material towards the war, Right. You can see that the North was fighting the war, yes, but they weren't throwing everything they had at it. Yeah, okay. And then they got to a point where they were like, nope, nope, we're going to really, if we're going to be in this thing, we're going to really do it. <laughs> and they basically threw threw everything in the kitchen sink. So Yeah. Well, well, part of that was simply because uh, in terms of, what their wartime goals turned into uh it, it turned into a war of invasion they had to you know the the american south at the time this is a vast landscape stretching all the way to, through western texas all the way to the edge of the atlantic ocean it's a vast amount of territory and they had to ultimately invade and subdue that territory which is a lot different than say just repelling an invading army you think about most of the war, like we think of the the major southern invasions of free soil were mostly the Gettysburg campaign and to an extent uh, the Antietam campaign a year before uh, when uh, the Army of Northern Virginia invaded Pennsylvania. But for the most part, this was a war prosecuted by uh, northern armies that invaded the south and occupied much of the south. And that is a huge task to, uh, to for an army to do. And so it required... The, all the economic resources, all the resources of an expanded federal government to prosecute that kind of war, all the, the bureaucracy needed to um, have uh, provost marshals in every occupied city to supply troops that are constantly on the move. It's, it's a massive industry. It was a massive infrastructural undertaking. And so it's simply, you know, it, 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 that kind of total war requires uh, total devotion. Okay, and it's it's your position, or I guess the historical fact, that this essentially wasn't the first goal. So would you mind telling my listeners, because I have listeners all over the world, uh, what the first, what the initial goal was? For the Union side? Uh, yes, sir. So the, the, the Union side's initial goal, and it was, it was Abraham Lincoln's initial goal, was to um, bring the seceded states to subdue them and bring them back into the union. Now, there's, there was a lot of discussion as actually exactly how did they want to do that. Um, with the firing on Fort Sumter, it was obvious that fighting was going to require it. Um, so 
the idea was to stop to sort of nip this in the bud, bring these states back into the union, dismantle the idea, the legitimacy of secession as an idea, and um, proceed from there because you know Lincoln was a conservative Republican in this in the sense of the time in that. You know, he he promised initially that you know I will not touch slavery. I'm I'm a free so I'm a member of a free soil party, but I won't touch slavery in the states where it exists where it exists. But I will not allow it to expand further west. Now, of course, the Southern fire readers didn't believe that. They assumed that he was that this was a conspiracy thing. He's really scheming to destroy slavery in the in the states where it also existed. This is where that, that and incidentally, that's where you never really want to. Uh, underappreciate the role that uh, delusion and conspiracy thinking plays in turning historical events because most people in the South didn't take Lincoln at his word. So his goal was not to, you know, not to end slavery where it existed. It was to simply get the states that had seceded, Mississippi, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, get them, Florida, get them back into the Union. And when that proved impossible, and when it proved impossible to prosecute this war with slavery intact, then the war shifted in 1862 to a war of uh, essentially liberation. Now, for for the purpose of uh, of pra for practical purposes, like the, the, you had slaves, enslaved people who were simply running to the Union armies. What do you do with these people? They don't want to exist in the state that they're in now. So. That's how you get the Emancipation Proclamation. So then it becomes a war of liberation, not just a war of containment. And from about 1862 on, that, that just accelerates. And that's uh, how uh, the Civil War became not so much a war of containment, but a total, really a revolution, honestly. Yeah, I always, uh, I like to say uh, the Civil War was actually a revolutionary war. And the Revolutionary War was really a civil war. The, the Civil War is America's greatest revolution. To this day, it still is. It, it, it well, transformed right. American society in a way that no war or no event before or since has. Okay, that's fascinating. Can we drill a little bit into the before and after picture? Uh, uh, in what sense? What would you like? So that's, that's, a, that's well, a lot there. Okay, so Right. Uh, so before, and then I guess, like before the war, before the Civil War, mm -hmm. you would, it'd be fair to say that, you know, the economy was, what was the economy and culture like? And then I guess in the antebellum period, because really before you could go all the way back to 16, whatever, in some places. Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's how I, how I can characterize that. Um, one example, in about in 1860, if you wanted to find out where the most concentrated wealth in America was, you would look at a map and you wouldn't point to Wall Street in New York City. You would point to this little stretch of plantation land in the Mississippi Delta and around Natchez County uh, and those other counties, the, the names are slipping me now. It's been a few years, but that little, that little... A little stretch of plantation land in the Mississippi Delta housed, in, in terms of its slave property, housed about $3 billion in wealth. And Is that in today's money? or I think it was in money at the time. But it was the, it wow. was the highest concentration of wealth in America in 1860, the richest part of America. So that gives you an idea of 
Um, now those are a very, those were the, the gilded class. Those were the 1% of their time, those large massive scale slaveholders. But it gives you an idea of how wealth was skewed. And that was more money than the railroads, for example, had. And so that's the concentration of wealth that you had in the South. Um, okay. And of course, that slave property gave the South uh, an inordinate amount of influence in the federal government. Uh, you know, of course, that all the way going back to the three-fifths clause of the Constitution in terms of its representation, it really gave the southern states outsized power in the, in the, uh, the federal government. And so all of that was on the line as the, the impending crisis, as David Potter called it, uh, accelerated into the 1850s, is that if a blow to slavery is not only a blow culturally, um, it was also a blow economically, and that's sort of the that's why the Civil War was so revolutionary. So before the war, you have a, a an American political culture that is essentially dominated by Southerners. After the war, immediately after, they lose all that power because they lost their wealth in slaves, and the that loss of wealth affected the South for generations after the war. Now, the second thing is the political revolution that happened with the, you know, the 13th and 14th Amendments and the, the, the freeing of the slaves. You have, uh, in terms of in radical reconstruction, you have a, a few brief years where you had states like Mississippi, which had a vast majority black population, enslaved black population before the war. Suddenly, they have the first black United States senators right after the war. That is an enormous shift in cultural power in a society, North and South, that is still fundamentally and deeply racist. And so with the 13th and 14th Amendments, you have this idea of not only the end of slavery, but functional, if not, um, or I should say ideological, if not functional racial equality. I think you cannot underestimate how significant that was because it's the thing that caused the backlash of uh, in terms of in the South, right. what we call the redemption of the Democratic Party and the reassertion of all the terrorism of the Klan after Reconstruction and the, the pullback from Reconstruction in 1860, 1875. Um, that kind of cultural and economic blow, there is there is no other precedent for it in U.S. history. If you if you like a lot of scholars, including myself, if you if you look at um, the Constitution, for example, as a fundamentally pro-slavery document, not explicitly, but fundamentally only in the sense of the power that it gave the Southern slaveholding states, that kind of power shift is, it's, it's nothing short of a revolution. And, and, the, even then, and then the, the revolution carries on through reconstruction, which is a whole new <laughs> can of worms you know, into itself, yeah, but that, but exactly. that's why it's so, that's why it's a revolution. And I'm just curious, um, would you then say that the industrialization of the North, like once the, um, I guess once the agrarian sort of power base, I guess went away or mm -hmm. became less valuable or however you want to say it, uh, would that, is, is that sort of what caused the industrialization of the North to sort of take off um, or, or uh, was there other factors involved in that? I mean, there's always other factors, but I think that's the big one. I mean, you could compare it loosely to 
um, the situation in the in the world after the Second World War, right? When you had so much of the other industrial powers decimated, leaving the United States as sort of this, you know, the one functioning world power simply because it didn't have a war on its shores, right? It's a similar thing after the Civil War. Um, the the South was was not was was a more agrarian society, but they had there was industry in the South, especially in the cities. Yeah. It just wasn't quite as much as in the northern states because of the, the, the slaveholding economy. Now, that slaveholding economy proved perfectly able to adapt to uh, urban labor. There were plenty of slaveholders who didn't, who didn't own a plantation. They, all of their slaveholding was in factories. Their slaves worked in factories. And so it was, it was um, uh, perfectly, it, you know, if, you, if, you, if the war never happens, the South would have continued to industrialize and slavery would have moved to kind of a half and half where it's like part of it is agriculture and part of it is industry. Um, There's actually, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, I'm just so, so that's the, that's the thing when, when, when that, when that source of labor is gone and much of the, the Southern economy is then in ruins after the war, then uh, the the Northern States are free to kind of take over in terms of that economic drive. I'm sorry to interrupt. There's actually a, a, a fact, there's actually a city um uh near me that actually had one of the first um what i guess what you would call uh factories that was staffed by slaves and i had to get, i'll tell you how hidden this is in american history uh scholarship i had to go to master's degree school to learn that the advent of those factories in my town in the town next to me Mm-hmm. was literally one of the reasons that the Civil War even happened. Because what happened was people, like people in the North, like we're saying, like with the railroads and the other factory workers in the North, they, I guess they read in the paper or whatever, like, oh God, they're doing this with the slaves in the factories? Oh my God, <laughs> you know. No, no, no. That's not good. You know, like like that. There, there's still this cultural perception now that associates Southern slaveholding, you know, with agriculture, you know, really, uh, yeah. it, it, labor is labor, no matter what it is. And, you know, slaves were human beings. They could do anything. They were, they could learn to do anything. Like there's no, there's no reason they could have, they needed to stay, uh, in agricultural work. Right? Well, I don't know if you remember, um, I don't know if you remember, I think it was Jack Dan, uh, I guess it was Jack Daniels, but if it wasn't, I'm not going to throw them under the bus. But <laughs> there was a um, an alcohol distillery that they didn't have the recipe on file with the government, right? With the U.S. government, and and why don't you have the recipe on file with the U.S. government? And you know, recently, you know, very recently, and well, they had to, they finally had to confess. That actually, the, uh, the the people making the the product, the spirit, were actually descendant from the slave, who was the, the I guess the, the the chief distiller, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it was crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, I forget the actual statistic, but uh, most of the at one point, most of your slaves were actually paid some wage or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, Frederick Douglass wrote about that in his memoir. He, he worked on the, the ships, the ship docks in Baltimore. 
Um, right. He right. spent part of his life uh, in in like harvesting, but he he was mostly uh, a slave in Baltimore. And he he was I think he was a ship's caulker, if I remember right. And he talked about you know he would get he would get a portion of wage and a portion of it would go to his owner at the time, and he was allowed to keep some. So that was fairly common. In my own research, uh, I found um, in in uh, cities in Mississippi, particularly Jackson and Natchez, you had slaves, particularly female women, women enslaved women who were able to set up their own independent shops in cities in Mississippi um, and run them independently. And of course, a lot of that money went to their owners, but um, it wasn't uncommon. Like, the, it, it really kind of redefines the whole idea of wage slavery, you know? Well, you know, and, and I guess functionally, in terms of your daily existence, uh, you could certainly have some say so over your daily life if you were a, a female shopkeeper or, or whatever. There's this general sense uh, in the historiography that that urban enslaved people had a bit more a, a level of autonomy that field work field hands didn't. That's for sure. Uh, right. Exactly. Um, was there any? Because unfortunately, you know, there's there's the skin color thing with African Americans. You know, white skin, dark skin, kind of a caste system. Sure. Was there any? Um, correlation between light-skinned and dark-skinned females or with the shopkeeping or has there been any scholarship in that there has um i'm not super familiar with a lot of it one thing i do know though is that lighter skinned um enslaved women tended to be relegated to housework and and that's a really ugly thing because part of the reason for that right. is they were essentially concubines a lot of the time. Right. And um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, it's just it, it's like it's very much the it, it's very much very similar to the the racial the racial dynamics in another major slave society at the time, Brazil, where skin tone was associated with with levels of privilege. So the darker a slave um the more grueling their lives tended to be. That's not, you know, an across the board thing, but in general, yeah. you know, it, it's like, it's, it goes to the, you know, the, the one drop rule. Right. right uh, that, in and, in okay, fact, wait, wait, if you wait. remember in uh, I don't know if you've ever read uncle Tom's cabin. I know. Okay. Wait, let me, let me back you up. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm not bragging. I'm listened to by folks all over the world. I actually have a huge audience in Australia, okay. which is insane to me. Uh, <laughs> so could you pretty please talk to these intelligent humans like they've never heard of what the one drop rule is? Because I have. Yeah. But perhaps somebody in Australia hasn't. Well, there's, there's, no, there's no hard and fast definition of it. It's the idea is that well, I mean, I guess there is in the in the legal sense. The idea is that if you were, especially in the 19th century U.S., if you had any amount of African blood, i.e., one drop, you could be considered non-white. You yeah. could you could on the outside you could easily pass as a white person. And you could go all of your life with other people thinking you were a white person. But if it was discovered that you had black ancestry on any uh, level, then you could immediately shift and become a black person and, and receive all of the, you know, the 
stigmatism that comes with that. And I don't know if you are aware or remember this, but there was actually a fascinating court case about this uh, young lady who was in uh, Louisiana. And this young lady was a blonde-headed, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed mm-hmm. young woman who, by all accounts, was, was very beautiful. And um, her she there was a man who presented himself as though he was her owner. And essentially, the weird thing is, or every single jury that ever, where this ever came before, okay, the jury looked at this young lady and said, no, 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 you're white, okay? Because if you're black, then I'm black too. <laughs> yeah. Right? And this, and these court cases, there was several of them, and they spanned, they essentially spanned the war. Like, they, they ran up to the war, the war happened, and then they went on after the war. Mm-hmm. And she has uh, descendants today that are alive today. But um, essentially, it is thought that, that these trials was one of the major causes of the Civil War, as much as any one other thing. Because people would read about this and freak out. <laughs> so, Well, it's, it, I, you know... It, it's definitely in the cultural stream. I mean, um, I don't know. If it, there, there were these, uh, what was his name? The, so the historian's name is completely escaping me, but um, there's a book, a, a very slim volume called Apostles of Disunion. Um, and it, it, it's the story of the Southern Secession Commissioners. These were guys sent from the Deep South states in 1860 who went up into the border South basically to try to convince states like Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Kentucky to join the Confederacy, and they did so. and And this book has um, uh, their speeches in the book, and all of their speeches are basically um, terrifying stories of the impending racial mixture mixtures that will engulf society if Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party gain power. It's not. It's not so much they were talking about. You know, slavery will be abolished. That was sort of understood. What they were saying is the racial line will vanish and that terrified people. So it's not off the mark to say that that's a very important issue in that respect. And I mentioned, I meant the reason I mentioned uncle Tom's cabin. I don't know if you ever read that, but the, the main character is a, is an enslaved woman named Liza, I think is her name in it. And she's functionally white, but she, she spends the book being chased by, um, by her master whom she escapes from. And that was a conscious decision on Harriet Beecher Stowe's part to have a slave woman, the major character who is functionally looking white being pursued as a slave because she's trying to show that the, the, this, I, the idea of racism is so absurd, you know, and And, you know, that was, that was a conscious choice. I mean, I'm, I'm going back many, many years in my mind, but I seem to remember that it is believed that the, the I guess the basic plot of um, Uncle Tom's Cabin was essentially real, like essentially that really happened to a to a human, and Harriet Beecher Stowe heard about it and turned it into a novel. At least that's what I remember. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think she she based it sort of on a mixture of of real stories that she had kind of gathered in the newspapers and stuff. I mean, it is a it is a a uh, a tragic novel of its time in that it's very overblown and very um romanticized in terms of its language and such, but it's based on uh events that all, you know, if not happened, it's sort of like one of those, you know, it's inspired by true events, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um okay. Anyway, um so now that we've talked about the Civil War, uh, um I guess like um what is I'm gonna ask you now uh questions about so you're in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um what do the Canadians uh think of our situation here? I guess the Canadians are around. Yeah. You mean you're referring to the, the pandemic crisis. Uh the pandemic and all that. Yeah. Et cetera. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I was just commenting on this. My, my in-laws live in Florida and uh, I was, you know, scanning around on Instagram earlier today and I, and I, I visited there several times over the years. And so I follow a lot of businesses on there, like craft breweries, cause I like craft beer and I see the pictures there and people are just inside these restaurants without masks and stuff. It's like, I was commenting that it really seems like an alternative universe, because if you go out here and like in Toronto, for example, um, it's very common to see people wearing masks outside and certainly inside you're required by the municipal government by law to wear a mask if you go indoors anywhere right here and and uh, people here are I think they're they're largely compliant they understand the 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 um, severity of this virus and what it can do and while there is of course you know Toronto is a city of eight million people when you consider all the landmark here and there is a small sort of anti-mask movement here too, but it's tiny and people consider these, these people nuts. And so people in, you know, in the Toronto area and I assume other places like Vancouver and stuff, look at what's going on in the U S and they're, they're absolutely befuddled by, yeah. pe- by people throwing tantrums online about having to wear a mask into target, you know, right. Like they're befuddled now, by it. Now, let me ask you, um, I mean, I know you're from K or from, Ohio because you told me yeah um do, do you keep up with anybody from from I guess from your old neighborhood or from your old city yeah I mean, I'm still friends with some folks on social media there and and you know I've I'm only about a five-hour drive from my hometown in Ohio from Toronto so I okay. you know up until the pandemic I would visit there every few months so yeah All right. so what's the can you juxtapose I guess your I guess vicarious slice of Ohio with your even more vicarious slice of Florida, for example. Well, you mean in terms of the pandemic? In terms of the pandemic, right. Well, that's hard because I actually haven't been to Ohio since the pandemic hit because the border has been closed <laughs> until America you, gets its stuff together. Can you travel between um, provinces? Uh, you can. It's not advised right now. And... Um, Honestly, the province is just so big, it would take a long time. So we haven't really done it. Toronto is kind of a world unto itself. You right. can, but it's not recommended. Each province has different, uh, depending on the government there, has slightly different rules. But it's definitely not recommended by the federal government. Um, but uh, from what my parents tell me in Ohio, um, in my slice of Ohio there, my former slice, that people are actually pretty, um, pretty, uh, taking it pretty seriously. My mom has to, my mom is a stylist who, 
uh, works at a, a hair shop and she has to wear her mask and everyone that goes into the shop has to wear her mask and she said it's very common to see in in grocery stores and stuff people most people are wearing masks whereas in florida it's just like it seems like a a, a damn free-for-all like it's just like like i said an alternative universe and florida I mean, is that in a lot of ways anyway right well <laughs> you know? I, I used to live in florida so so you know <laughs> so well I, you know it's it, my little slice of Florida at the time uh, seemed very much, very kind of a divided society. In fact, I remember saying that at the time, that this place seems like a divided society. Um, but yeah, you, you have a lot of, I guess, rural people and a lot of, I guess, urban people. But there's also kind of vacation brain, which I guess for some people in Florida can be perpetual <laughs> you know <laughs> well florida florida is an immigrant state uh from people who immigrate there from other parts of the country and so it's such a i hate the term melting pot but i'll use it for now it's it's such a variety of people there from all over the place you know it's i, I was just joking to go there it's like it's very rare to actually meet somebody who's born in florida because everybody is from somewhere else well, you so know, i i live in the uh the seventh largest metro area in North America. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, you can't tell it from my voice, but I'm, I'm from here as, as, as long as you can be from anywhere. And, uh, it's a, Atlanta's a small town. If, if, if you're from here, like really from here, like I am, mm -hmm. Atlanta's a small town, like a, you know, like I can go to across town, literally practically across the state and meet somebody. And we talk about things like that happened 20 or 30 years ago, or, or like you'll meet somebody from across town and, Oh yeah, I remember so-and-so that lived in a whole other part of town <laughs> or whatever. Mm -hmm. it's, insane. it's insane. Like the lived experience of somebody. Okay. When I was at, Essentially, like Metro Atlanta has doubled in size within the part of my life that I remember. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I can remember being a child and Atlanta was literally half the size it is today. And that's, you know. that's part of, I think that's just part of a general trend in the major cities in North America. I mean, I, I've been in Toronto since 2011 and the amount of growth in this city since then is astounding. Like, like the give me an example. Well, give me example. I'll give you an example. So one of the major intersections I live by, we're up in the northern part of the city, is called uh, Eglinton and Young. Young Street is the major one of the major throughways for the city. And when we first moved here, uh, the, that intersection, um, there were no high rises there. Right now, if I look down the street, there are at least six or seven. I mean, they're gigantic. Gigantic! It is, and that is happening in neighborhoods all through the city. This, this city is growing to an unsustainable rate right now, and it is experiencing a housing crisis like you wouldn't believe. The cost of living in the city has shot up so much just in, in five, six years. It's amazing, and that's happening in urban centers like Atlanta and Boston and Vancouver. It's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. It's um, what's amazing to me is like, you know, when you when you go up to any you know Boston or Philly or anywhere you see these, I guess these brownstones, which I know that used to be the ghetto like mm -hmm. a gazillion years ago. That was the ghetto. And now it's, 
you know, she, she, and, you know, hoi polloi one percenter territory. It's totally crazy. It's the, uh, the uh, gentrification. Right. Full blast. Let me ask you a question. Uh, you'd said earlier that you hate the term melting pot. Why do you hate the term melting pot? So much? Uh, I think, I, I think I like, I don't like it because it's, it sort of has this, this, um, how do I phrase this? I want. I don't want to say stigma. It has this idea, this very rosy picture behind it. Like you know, when you talk about like America as a melting pot in which all cultures mix, it really kind of, I think, kind of flattens out the very real differences, cultural differences among different groups and how they've clashed over the course of U.S. history. That's all. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just it's not a favorite of mine. I think it kind of obscures a lot of the conflict. Yeah, well, there is a lot. I mean, right, the whole history. There's, there's a whole history of it, whole history of conflict. I wrote, I wrote a, a literary guide for a book. I, it's called Out of This Furnace. It's a really great historical novel about uh, uh, Eastern European immigrants who came to Pennsylvania to work in the steel mills and furnaces there. And it, it, it really emphasizes the, how ridiculous the whole melting pot idea is because you have people you know slovak people who had came and they were viewed as not real americans who could never possibly assimilate and so the older generations of anglo mill workers and stuff constantly looked down on them uh because they were they were hunkies as they were called and so you know the, the idea of a melting pot i guess i guess the nice thing you can say about it it's always been more of an aspiration than a reality you know <laughs> well right and and what's funny today is like you fast forward to now, you know, those, those Slovak descendants today, like me. <laughs> oh, right. And earlier you had said that you were a Slovak descendant. And of course the, I think like the very last paper I wrote in college was about baseball. And one of the things that I had learned in that, well, no, I learned it before because baseball is just in my gene pool but one of the things that i learned in an academic set setting was that the immigrants uh really gravitated towards baseball as a way to prove they were american and so that's why like boston and new york and places became huge you know giants yankees red mm -hmm. sox like that and um I guess where I'm going with this is it's ironic that you think of baseball as America's game and it was really taken up by a bunch of by mainly the immigrants and also weirdly people from the south. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and baseball is an urban sport. It started in the cities. It was always an urban sport. Yep. Until recent until well, not recently, but you know, later on. But uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, what about um, so with? I guess do you see um, do you see a day when European kind of immigration will continue to America? Oh, will will pick back up, so to say, or or like that? Um, I guess I guess. Uh... For, I mean, I have somewhat limited knowledge of this, but from what I understand, um, there is still a lot of European immigration to the U.S. It's it's largely from Eastern Europe and the Balkans. 
now. Um, yeah. But uh, in terms of whether it will pick up from like Western Europe, which for a very long time, especially the 19th century, was quote the preferred region of immigration. Um, I don't know. Um, well, I'm not history, sure. I don't know. Yeah, history is uh, historians are supposed to be bad tellers of the future. I don't. I don't know if I believe that. But yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't, I don't sometimes, I sometimes not. I mean. <laughs> Well, you know, what's what's the quote? Uh, history rhymes or something like that. Yeah, I always say it doesn't quite repeat itself, but it really sure does echo, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, it's funny you said that about um, people assimilating. I actually, years ago, I had met this fella who was, uh, who had essentially, he'd run away when he was a child. He had literally run away to Chicago as a, as a boy. Okay. And from Mississippi, he ran away to Chicago and, and basically by hook and crook and whatever else, he'd worked his way up to become a lawyer. And he was a, he was an African-American. He was a big, big man, huge man. And he'd worked his way up to become this kind of a, a prosperous lawyer in Chicago. But he said when he got to Chicago, he he lived in the in the black section in Chicago, and he said it was just like Mississippi, except in the winter. When it was yeah. really cold. <laughs> they had they had the white socks. So that's what made it different from Mississippi. But um so I have some COVID questions for you. Okay. Uh, when did you become aware of COVID-19? Yeah. Um, it was, well, uh, I was going to say it was, it was back in, I was going to say February, but I actually think it was January because, uh, I mentioned this last time we talked, but like, um, the news, uh, uh, the COVID news was coming in, uh, from China pretty early on in this year. And, uh, Toronto has a very large Chinese Canadian population. And so I remember being on the, uh, the subway here back in early winter, January, and you would see um, people who were like, if you go through Chinatown, you would see people wearing masks on the trains and on the streetcars here uh, back in January, because they had, it was, you know, more culturally acceptable for people of Chinese background. And so that was when I first really noticed it when I you started mean to wear a mask. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, people in Asian countries are much more prone, even during regular flu season, particularly in like Japan, just wearing masks out of common courtesy to keep the spread of regular flu, flu and cold viruses down. And so I would see that on the transit in Toronto among a lot of um, like Asian Toronto residents. They were, they were wearing masks back in January before, okay. before the uh, virus was even, before anybody really thought that would, that would, they would come here and uh, wreck the havoc that it did. And uh, let me ask you this. When did you um, realize that COVID was going to be a big deal? I had a sense of it. it even back in February, I remember I had, I actually just visited my parents in like, I think mid-February, around the weekend of February 15th or so. And I had come back that week, back to Toronto. And I remember I practiced martial arts. And so I was at my dojo and one of, uh, one of my the other people there, he works in a hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. And he was telling me 
he said, he said, dude, you better not be going back to the States now. The, the, the government just, the, the Ministry of Health is going to start issuing travel warnings pretty soon. And this was in mid-February. So that was when I really got a sense that this is getting bad. What it really solidified for me was in mid-March when they, when the government of Ontario shut all the schools down. When, uh, I mean, the basketball, the NBA closed up in, in uh, uh, March 14th was when the NBA closed up. Okay, and, so that would have been that time, yeah, when they closed the schools here, right around there, yeah. Yeah, and what I remember about that was I was going out to uh, going out to, to dinner with a buddy of mine, and that was actually uh, the last time I'd ever, I, I, that was actually the second to last time I had eaten out, and the last time I ate out in a, in a structure. Okay, <laughs> and, right. And um, what I remember was... Our, Every phone in the building went off at the same time, right? And there was like a collective gasp, like, oh, the NBA's buttoned up. This is serious. You know, like, yeah. um, okay. So, and this question has snuck up on me. Uh, are you missing people? Now, let me tell you what I mean by missing people. I don't mean do you miss people. What I mean is, are there people you would see that you don't see norm that you would see in your normal day that you don't see anymore? Um, not really. I mean, only in the sense is that we don't we don't visit as much. But in terms of like people just sort of vanishing or like not really no. Well, yeah. Let me, let me. Okay. Let me. Yeah. Like people in this country and nobody. I hate to, I hate to use the word the media. Because, you know, that has, like, the media isn't saying this, okay? But there really is, like, this epidemic of people that are just missing hmm. from people's lives. And it, it snuck up on me as a question, you know? Yeah, I can't say I've experienced that personally, but I, I've heard that online here and there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, And I guess the... Uh, the final question I want to ask is, uh, do you have, Jared, uh, do you have anything you want to say to the internet? I'll repeat what I said in our first conversation is that practice information literacy when you're on the internet. Yeah. Try to check where sources come from. What is their provenance? And don't share something just because it gives you an immediate kind of adrenaline rush of, you know, agreement or Dopamine. outrage. Dopamine. Dopamine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I, I should tell the listeners that the reason why this is the second time <laughs> is because um, the first time the audio quality was less than stellar, and I didn't want to subject you guys to a very fascinating conversation, which was just not suitable for anybody's ear in terms of quality. <laughs> so, uh, but I do want to have you on at some other point in the future. And also, if you could just uh, hang on while I download the files, it'd be beautiful. Sure, no problem. All right. Thank you. And bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>